Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston and I have Moitre Decca, Senior Lecturer at University of Essex with me today. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. Very happy to be on this podcast today. Excellent. Today we are going to be talking about Traders and Tinkers, Bazaars in the Global Economy that was published in Stanford University Press 2023. So uh, the first question, uh, Matre, is how did you first become interested in doing the research that turned into this book? Uh you know, Michael, this is my first book, and I think like with many of us, it started with my doctoral research, um, which started off in 2012. And first I did a year-long ethnography till 2013. Um, but I, I kept revisiting these marketplaces, and the most recent visit was in 2022. And I think the book was a natural progression because of trying to culminate the research that I've done so far in the marketplaces. Yeah. Excellent. So what method did you use to conduct your research on bizarre markets? You said you started in 2013, so this was a really long period of time. What did you do? Yeah, it was like, actually, when I first started, it was very intensive, you know, because I was in Delhi's three marketplaces, quite interestingly geographically situated in the north, central and the southern part of Delhi. And what I used to do is to go three, four days, three, four uh, days a week and spend like four or five hours there. Uh, more like a classical ethnography, but I did mostly non-participant observation because it wasn't possible for me to actually sell things with them. And once or twice I actually tried and I thought I was more trouble than help. So I just quickly learned to uh, navigate and, and take on a stance which is a little bit more passive. But that was like what happened year long. But since then, whenever I've been going to the marketplaces, it's more like uh, talking to the acquaintances. It became more conversational style. So it's not been as intensive. But even if it was for a short period of time, it really helped me to have the longitudinal analysis. And I think it's also because the marketplaces are situated in Delhi and Delhi being like the capital city and most flights going through Delhi. So it was more of a thing of, oh, I want to go and see how my friends are doing, you know. And then every time I went back, I felt like, okay, I came back with a different idea of what's happening there. And then it also meant that I got a little bit more serious about 
uh, you know, spending like a month or two uh, whenever I could do that over the past 10 years now. So, yeah, so it's been like a decade-long research there. Wow, and, and uh, very rich information that you brought into this book. Uh, so could you tell me about uh, some of these people who you uh, who you hung out with and, and surrounded yourself with? Who were, what was the demographic of the participants in this research? Uh, so this was, as I mentioned in the book, like something around, I think, 16 to 65. They were all men uh, in this age group. And it was mostly, you know, elder men were mostly traders, by which I mean they were like people who had uh, either rented a shop or had their own shops in these marketplaces. They were a bit older. They also had families and uh, they some of them also came from business families. But they are all, I use the word small scale traders, uh, mostly because they usually have an income of about, I would say, thousand pounds or less a month. Uh, and so they're not like really big businessmen, uh, business people. And then I had looked at also in one of the marketplaces, Nehru Place, which is in South Delhi, and this is more uh, to do with computer uh, hardware and also uh, other kind of uh, you know computer-related uh, goods. And there I looked mostly the payment vendors. So. These were mostly younger men because they weren't doing that much of skilled uh, job, so to speak. So they were younger, sometimes straight out of school, sometimes like just have done their basic level of education and and been there in the market, like screaming for customers. So the vendors, street vendors were younger, but uh, the traders were a bit more varied age, going up to their middle to late middle ages, yeah. And did you find that this age, uh, this wide age span to have any impact on how you went about conducting your research? Did their response differ uh, to you being present in the uh, either in the marketplace or um, for traders or with the street vendors? That's a very good question. And I because I think, you know, when you're doing um, a challenging research, like researching marketplace, because it's a very, very busy and you immediately feel yourself uh, being kind of an outsider because this is the place where they are in their bread and butter, right? So you already feel you're intruding. So with the traders, I found that kind of, it's not really initially at least, not hostility, but kind of like annoyance of me hanging out there. And they were a little bit more moralistic of seeing a young woman in the marketplace and like, what was my intention? Why was I even there? Uh, and uh, they were a bit more patronizing, so to speak. But with the younger men, I think they were a little bit seeing me as like an NGO worker or someone, you know, who who they were seeing otherwise also a figure like me who came and went and tried to, you know, speak to them because at least in Nehru place where the street vendors were, there were also presence of, you know, non-governmental organization trying to find these people permanent spots and, you know, helping them out. Uh, against eviction, etc. So they had a little bit more reverential uh, attitude towards me. But the traders had, little, as I said, a bit more patronizing. But that also changed over time when they got used to me. Yeah, so those things were more uh, acute in the initial, initial few months. 
So how did you go about finding uh, or building a rapport with some of these older men? Uh, what are some strategies that you used? Yeah, I did have to have to play a certain gendered self. And uh, that's, uh, that's something that I was very aware of. So first of all, how I dressed, you know, I was much more docile. <laughs> and I'm anyways, I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always being a bit soft-spoken, but um, in that marketplace, I really thought I, I don't have to always speak, you know, so I really had to uh, choose my battles because I also felt like I, I, I do not agree with some of their, you know, attacks about like, you know, a single woman being in these spaces and, you know, seeing me in a certain light. But I also felt like if I brought that gender dynamic and start to argue with them and it just takes away from uh, me, first of all, one person against them doesn't make sense. But also it just uh, kind of would be an incomplete project. So I thought rather to interact with them and just let them see why I was there. And that strategy actually worked. I just took like their initial questioning as a bitter pill, like about my private life, if I was married, if I was looking for a boyfriend. So I just let them speak. And once they were happy, <laughs> you know, interrogating me. But I also, le- I think, say that in the book, because in the end, when I go there now, there is so much like diversity in how they see me. You know, that's beautiful. Like, they don't anymore see me as an unmarried, problematic, uh, you know, a presence. But like, in a way, like they try to understand like that people make different choices. So I think that in a way also evolved like somewhere where it's seen as a, it's a conservative space. But uh, people can actually still engage uh, with, with differences if, if, it, if it takes time, uh, even though it takes time. Yeah. And I think that if I were in the same place, maybe I'd even feel a bit honored to have somebody there who wants to listen to my story and and tell my story because these aren't rich businessmen; these are entrepreneurs of a of a sort in India. Correct? You would think. I thought so too. In fact, a, a lot of my friends and colleagues were like, "People like to talk," but that was never the case. They it was always very very exhausting to have let them. Speak like you know start a conversation it's also i think the fatigue and as you said you you said in the question itself being in so much of a competitive market zone like this greet and hustle and all that i'm hustling i think they just feel like they want to get done with the day get what an income and i they don't see me as lucrative financially so yeah so this concept of bizarre, I, I I found it quite you know bizarre myself, and and I had no uh, real knowledge of what a bizarre was until coming across your your book. Um, so could you tell me a bit more about what that what a bizarre is and where maybe that concept came from? Yeah, I try to be short because that's I think a bit of the whole thing about writing the book, you know, because I wrote many articles, but I always felt I couldn't do. Uh, take the space of really speculating and working through concepts. But uh, Bazaar was a very conscious choice because I wanted a term that captures the empirical realities of what I was observing. Because usually you have markets and you have capitalism and you have different type of market 
marketplaces and markets. But it, it, the specificity of this place was that it's it's not irrational, but it's neither calculative as we think market actors are, like the self-interested market actor, the quintessential economy, homo economicus. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, literature on this. In the book, unfortunately, I couldn't go so much into it because I had to also keep the empirical and the contemporary part as the focus. But historically speaking, also bazaars had interesting roots in, you know, Roman bazaars, Mughal bazaars, uh, you know, colonial bazaars, Victorian bazaars. And throughout this, I think the idea has been this kind of chaotic assemblages of people, crowded places, often having higgling and haggling to settle prices, uh, and being in between a social and economic space. So you cannot see, see this space as completely social, because that's something I think if someone has followed the trajectory of economic sociology, the debate has been that if you are uh, doing um, something like uh, sociologically looking at the marketplace, then they are seen as embedded. So they become more social. But if you look from the economic perspective, it becomes all money making. But the bazaar kind of let me talk about this, you know, complex intermixing of these two worlds. You know, yeah. Yeah. So I think that maybe something that would be relatively close to a bazaar um, in the United States would be a farmer's market or something like that, uh, where you're going out into the streets, but you're there to meet with. Uh, uh, people who are like you to talk with them and have conversation, but there is still an exchange taking place. That's a great example, exactly. And that's I think because what happens is like usually when you talk about the mar- farmers marketplace, um, that again is, a, is is still a specific type. You know, usually middle class, but uh, kind of little bit more. Um, how to say, more homogeneous in a way and a little bit more designed. Uh, so the bazaar would be that version, but from more working popular uh, classes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there were even uh, a variety of different, uh, um, call it players or uh, roles of different people who uh, worked within these spaces. You you throw traders out there and and tinkers and street vendors. What are these different roles? So I mean, like bazaar, tinker is another uh, term to tie the material together, you know, so you could see them as the big concepts, so to speak, because bazaars become a way to fine line the economic practices uh, of these marketplaces and tinkers become a word to talk about the skill set of these people. And like bazaar, tinkers also has a long history. And what I found as I was reading about medieval thinkers, Roma thinkers in, in, and Irish thinkers in, in Europe, uh, they use a technique called soldiering, soldering, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which is basically when pots and pans are uh, broken, they try to you know, use metal and, and, and you know, fix it. And they did a lot of these odd jobs, jobs that nobody else would do because they were you know, if we still have this uh, idea about uh, Roma travelers, it's 
so they're still not uh, included all the time, but at that time even less. So they had to do things, come up with things that actually was seen as useless probably by other people. And the same word is still used by electronic thinkers today, like the traders. They solder, but they use like uh, a different kind of uh, liquid and uh, substance to kind of uh, mod, um, remod the you know the um, circuit boards and and reballing technique. So they use the similar terminology, which I thought was like yeah, kind of like a nice <laughs> continuity. But the tinker is a nice concept to talk about this kind of little bit more uh, backyard style innovation, not very formal and institutionalized, but, you know, ad hoc and um, flexible uh, things that they do, scavenging and, and fixing things. Yeah, so that's what. And then is the uh, trader and the street vendor uh, uh, different models, and how uh, and how the the exchange takes place, and what and how uh, permanent maybe how permanent their uh, place of trade is? Yeah, they are different, and but the reason I still include them in the category of the tinker, um, and I'll come to the difference uh, later, is that I still wanted to able to speak about these people you know sometimes like i think we face so much difficulties because we get so much into the nitty-gritties and then we cannot say anything but i was like i want to talk about the people who work here and who make a living here although their economic realities are different as i said already like for the traders to take home a thousand pound is not really a bad income for Indian. It's not even an it's an average income in most European countries as well. But they still feel persecuted, you know, in a way, not having a kind of a say in the official plans, seeing these marketplaces changing very suddenly and very profoundly, or also not kind of seen as the poster child of new india you know these people are not what we associate the neoliberal india and the you know india shining to be the other the vendors were financially much more uh, precarious because they did really um, simple jobs of trying out for c- customers and they took home i would say about maybe a hundred dollars or something like that so there was a bit of an economic divide but they still formed a cluster of not being the big business elites of uh, yeah cityscapes and do they really see themselves like the the traders and street did they see themselves as divided i one of the things that stood out to me is it seemed like uh there was a lot of helping one another out in their initiatives and not not this rigid stratification, this huge com- competition and and being against one another in the, the process of, of making these exchanges with customers. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, you spotted that. I mean, it's I think if it was an ideal world, uh, and I, I tried to bring that out as well, they would probably act like ruthless capitalists too, you know. So I do, I cannot comment on if they invariably like to be in this competitive co- coexisting zone. But the way things are, they have numerous constraints. They know that 
it's not like they have uh, enough surplus income to invest in bigger projects or shift their business elsewhere. So they have to, in a way, collaborate. And, 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 and that really helps them because many of them do not come with uh, formal training. So they learn their trade by lo- looking at each other, copying from each other, borrowing from each other. So at the end, and also, as I say, in the ethics chapter, there's also a lot of moral pressure of conducting a business in a certain way, because there is always going to be gossip and, and you know, stigma around if you are behaving. So there is, in all of this brings them to exist in this more, yeah, um, helpful kind of yeah um, yeah because there's social morals but also religious morals that are uh, that are behind all of the actions taking place within the market yes yeah i was surprised how much of the time they spend in talking about these things you know so once a, a transaction got over there was always conversation about what they did and how they felt about it and always bringing in some or the other religious references to talk about their uh, position in, in this kind of an economy. Yeah. So it is a bit strange even for the bazaars to still be able to survive in a, a 21st century mass manufacturing environment that uh, even Walter Benjamin wrote about. And he predicted a decline uh, in the number of bazaars that existed in these informal markets. Why hasn't this happened? This hasn't happened in, in the post-colonial context because you know, even though the post-colonial, uh, from the context of India at least, was made out to be the rule of the people of the land, it never happened. We always had an elite structures that was in place, that was designing city spaces. And there had to be some place where uh, the ordinariness could exist. And eventually what happened was that flashier places came up, the elites moved there. And the cracks or, or the interstices that bazaars became was where uh, the non-elite survived. And they are really guerrilla-style places. You can hide, you can uh, expand, you can, uh, you know, retreat. You can just start business with a desk and take it home. When So you, it's more out of practicality. And, and I guess, like, also in infrastructure, you can really hide well in, in this kind of dilapidated, decadent uh, structures of yeah, high modernism in Delhi. And in some ways, the mass production helps the bazaar out because the, there has to be excess in order for these uh, owners and traders and street vendors to be able to um, put, these, put these products on the market. Absolutely. So architecturally, aesthetically makes sense, but through very, very uh, concrete economic terms as well. As you mentioned, they are really cheap and they are available in so many versions. You can buy secondhand, you can buy knockoffs, you can buy two stolen things. So you really, it's pocket friendly uh, for all kinds of consumers. And and do you find that the traders and street vendors are are pretty transparent about the product that is being sold? Uh, communication. Do you think that's an important part of the sales that are taking place? Um, generally, yes. Largely, yes. But there's also, you know, distinction between a one-time buyer and a regular customer. Of course, which is not surprising. 
<laughs> and they're very good at spotting that like so if they see someone who's not probably like a tourist or he's not from delhi they wouldn't spend so much time and would likely quote a higher price but i feel like at the end of the day they also know if they sell a very bad product they there's someone is going to come and try to get back the money and things so there's still a bit of transparency in, involved uh, in trying to not sell a completely spurious or bad quality product this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Are there certain ways that the uh, the, the, the stranger or the uh, tourist stands out uh, from, the, uh, from the regular? Are there, are there certain symbol, uh, signs that... Uh, are portrayed in the in the exchanges that take place it's not obvious to me but okay. like with the regulars of course you know because they can they know each other by name and they know so that's a bit uh, that, that makes sense but with strangers and uh, and uh, you know uh, a queen, like uh, new new visitors i was also surprised but that's also like i think the storytelling part and i tried to bring that out in the book as well is is such a psychological warfare going on like the traders are always assessing people <laughs> not that they always get it right but it's it's almost humorous like how they're like if the way they walk or the way they ask questions the naivete you know the where their eyes are going they're very good at like and they say even before someone enters this person is just coming to do time pass which in india is like you know wasting time or just uh, dilly-dallying. So, yeah, it, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, like, but they have their measures. I wouldn't say they're objective, but, yeah. Mostly, I think, through gestures and, and, and bodily, bodily and bodily, yeah, embodied ways. So, being a, a big Goffman fan, I, I think that there's importance in the front stage for the trader and the as well as the street vendors and the backstage. Uh, could you talk a bit about the importance of these two stages when it comes to uh, trading and and being a vendor? Yeah, I was always I was in a, in a way struggling to find a word to talk about these two. Uh, ways in which price becomes a reality for the marketplaces because one is of course because they do not sell on posted price i have never seen there's always bargaining even if there's a price written on something they're like you know both buyer and the seller knows that you can bargain it to to a point uh but that was like the front stage was something i saw in front of me so it was literally what happened when i was there in the marketplace the backstage Often the goods were already left with the because they came either at night or they picked it up, you know, going to some place. So I wasn't really always present when this exchange happened, but I was still aware of it because when they're selling, I'm asking them question: How much did you buy it for? And you know, so so there was a bit of invisibility of that zone as opposed to you know face to face exchange. 
So now I want to make a, a you know, slight transition. Uh, in your in your book, you um, wrote a bit about the exchange, uh, the exchanges between men and and women, and and the importance of gender uh, in terms of the exchanges that took place and the relationship between men and women. Many most of the traders and street vendors were male. So did you see that gender plays a, a big or an important role in the marketplace in these bazaars? Yeah, I think it plays a big role. And I would say rather the absence of women more than the presence of them is something I felt make a huge difference to urban spaces, how uh, their longevity and the character of these places. Now, there have been a lot of women bazaars, like especially agricultural marketplaces, and they're well documented if you're in Bolivia. Also, there's Kasi marketplace in India, in Meghalaya. But these are very women-specific marketplaces. So all the vendors are women, and uh, so they have a particular um, flavor to, to how business is conducted. But usually in urban bazaars, they are mainly men who, who tra- uh, trade there. Customers are a little bit more varied, but still I would say 80% men. And women, even if they came, they came either accompanied. I saw very few women who came unaccompanied and were alone, but that still happens. And in a way, I also like, this is not wasn't the focus of my ethnography, but I tried to kind of see like what is the long longer impact of this you know because i think it's not that women do not inhabit urban spaces or public spaces in a city like delhi but i would still feel middle class and upper middle class women feeling much more comfortable going to supermarkets and malls than going to the bazaar and in effect you couldn't even say that it's the masculinity that's the problem here it's also how we see city spaces as safe and unsafe um, and it's not entirely, you know, misconstrued because, of course, Delhi is a city which, which is rough at times. But it's it hasn't helped that we also have an understanding of uh, these popular spaces as completely unsafe sometimes, and and not even willing to engage with it at a larger level. Yeah. So that was, in a way, I feel that wouldn't probably change that much because I still see this composition of uh, consumers and traders seeing in terms of gender being quite uh, skewed. Uh, but it's it's probably a way to consciously make some choices about how we inhibit urban spaces and the importance of them. Yeah, I don't know if I made sense. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes complete sense. Uh, one of the things that I thought of about uh, as you started to talk about uh, the uh, the space that the urban space, but also uh, I thought about how it's an informal market. It's a bazaar. There are there's really no. It's not that there is no structure, but it's not institutionalized. So the structures are are not formal, they're informal, and they might be ever-changing, which leaves some questionability in terms of how these exchanges are going to take place. And they, uh, it's not like your Walmart or um, Kmart or Target, because those are places where the price is pretty much set. I can't go to the register and say, I don't want to pay $5 for this product, can I pay $3.50? 
no, it doesn't work that way. But in the informal market, there is bartering that and and negotiating that takes place, and and it may be uncomfortable for some people, and, and maybe in particular women, particularly women, in this exchange at the bazaar. Yeah, that that could be a reason for for the lesser presence of women, for sure. I mean, it's. It can be challenging, and, and and I mentioned it like my first visit to the marketplace. I felt very uh, almost fearful of going back to them because I was dragged and pushed and shoved. Uh, it's but it's I don't know. I mean, this is always like you know arguing sociologically at the level of what is risk today, but also arguing at the level of how little bit of challenging social situation, what does it create as a future society? Because me going back and kind of like getting past those inhibition also uh, allowed me to see the other side of, of like how so much of this risk and, and uh, precarity is also at the surface and, and the unfamiliarity is from both sides. And once you establish some kind of rapport, it gets easier. Um, to do that, but you are absolutely right. Uh, the bargaining and and the informal structure, and often like quite dingy and <laughs> kind of feeling and seedy zones. They they are not always attractive to women. And uh, in, in terms of the uh, transformation that's taking place within, uh, because we talk about masculinity and femininity, we can talk about a variety of different things because uh, bazaars aren't made in a vacuum. You know, we continue in sociology, talk about how, the, how society is not made in a vacuum. And another major social force that you um, talked about in the later chapters of your book is technology. So how has technology influenced and, and changed the the bazaar? Yeah, I mean, that's been the, one of the most like powerful presence in the marketplace because in terms of products, I focused on video games particularly. So, you know, technological product. So that has always been and also the reason for using the word tinker because of, of what they can do with, with the materiality of video games, like selling and also innovating. and and fixing them but what i observed is that till about the 90s and 2000 this was most to do with them. technology was mostly material what they could see what they could fix what they could hold but from 2000 i would say 10 onwards is the virtual infrastructure of e-commerce platform that comes in yeah, like WhatsApp, right? And other internet-based uh, applications where people can um, well, not only sell online, but also communicate uh, virtually with one another. So potentially opening up the marketplace. But uh, was there some level of rejection that was made by the bazaar and, and, and refusing to go, go, go to that? There was a lot of resistance. And it was so striking because with WhatsApp, they were okay. In fact, my WhatsApp, I, I think that time there was some kind of restriction in India and you couldn't freely download WhatsApp. So my first WhatsApp connection was through this pirated and stealth mode that one of the Bazari friend put, put WhatsApp on my phone. So they were very okay with that. They were very comfortable. They were using WeChat when before it was banned or I think it's still... Um, QQ, there was a app called QQ with Chinese vendors, especially, and WhatsApp with local vendors. 
that was all okay. But what really made them fearful was platforms, online platforms like Flipkart, which is a local version of an e-commerce uh, platform. I think Walmart bought it recently. Then Amazon, eBay. That was something that shook them to the core to the point that I thought I would not see these marketplaces next time because this seems to be a real threat. And first I thought it was just exaggerated. But as I really reflected on what they were saying, I think what they found challenging was these was uh, this new infrastructure could do everything that the bazaars were doing and better because now you know a lot of the uh, some of the uh, platforms can sell stolen sometimes they do this now it's this interest and second hand and they do it from the convenience of their from your home consumers can buy it so why would they come to the bazaars to to buy things um the only thing they felt the bazaar still did was repair work uh, but then sometimes they feel even repair, probably they can now buy things online and then fix themselves. So this is like, to me, like, so when I look at this interaction now um, and, and the last time that I have been to the marketplace in, in 2022 after the pandemic, I find that bazaars are already hybrid. They, they have the physical shops, but the flow of consume, face-to-face consumers are massively on the decline and most of their uh, exchange is happening online. And part of the fear is diminishing because financially they're doing okay. They are, they are able to earn, but they are still very nervous socially and they're still very nervous about their habitat. Like, you know, this kind of urban life that they have of coming to the marketplace and I often thought like they don't have to be in the marketplace anymore they could do this from their living room but it's essentially also showing the other side of what we started of this the sociality you know like massive underclass urban sociality where do you you know replace or substitute or and and or in fact, how do you preserve that in, in the long? In the long and run? it also compounds the front stage and backstage because the front stage and backstage are, um, tr- they they are most basically the same location. Then if somebody's coming over to, uh, to their house or to you know to pick up the product that was purchased online, uh, certain things that were once being once hidden in the backstage become visible. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, that that becomes visible. I would say to a fewer actors, maybe the ones who are part of the exchange, but the theatrics of it goes away. Uh, you know, because in the bazaar, what happens is that it's for everyone to see. It's played out with the public, uh, in front of the public. Uh, but I have also become like I. I'm not a luddite by any any measure, but. Because I study technology, I, I I work on STS, but I'm always a skeptic in the beginning. So in I was really like uh, caught up with this discussion that oh bazaars are going to die and you know e-commerce is going to take over and I, I wasn't very happy. But all, with time, I have tried to see the, how how actually the transition is happening, and it's not probably going to either or. But it's still important for more and more researchers to keep talking about the transition and the 
uh, strands of that transition because you know sometimes if you do not really keep record of this it doesn't take uh, suddenly things might switch and you might see this uh, physical places becoming redundant and and disappear disappearance of them becoming a reality so it's just about uh, yeah observing and keeping track of the changing so, yeah. oh and humans being social beings i don't think that it's ever going to be completely an electronic exchange and uh, i i i think that even AI, you know, that's a new area of, of technology that's starting to um, really take root in the university and, and a push towards all faculty take, or at least in my university, all faculty taking a look at it and seeing how, how it might be taken up by even sociologists. And, and we, I think we saw uh, technology in the economy early on as be uh, really shifting with, with credit cards and uh, and Apple Pay and things like that. Has any of that entered the bazaar? All of them have entered the bazaar. I mean, India stack uh, is it's massive because that's like the new infrastructure that allows you to make payments by the phone and most are using actually digital currency now and cash has almost disappeared from these marketplaces. Um, but like I, I agree with you that, in a way, the sociality component, I mean, the fact that we are debating about chat GPT and others, but essentially, I think, like, the fatigue is visible, though, you know? Like, I feel like the traders, in some ways, even if they, even if they are going to be there and there's no immediate risk, the fatigue of declining consumers, the fatigue of seeing themselves in this different medium whereby they're losing control. They're aware of that because before what used to happen, a lot of the transaction was within their control. They were calling the shots. Now they're mostly reacting to what platforms are allowing them to do, you know, selling and buying on that. So it's complex, but it's, it's also good to, I won't say be optimistic, but cautiously optimistic about <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You you talk about uh, how control is being taken over, but control isn't something that is being, you know, managed by a person. It's more of a social force. It's it's a it's a institution within society that is encroaching in on uh, maybe what once was more more of a familial based economic form rather than one that was solely in the economy and overseen by uh, maybe government or politics, right? Yeah, exactly. The rules of it, the decorum, the rituals of commerce, everything shifts when you are looking at through uh, platforms, how you appear as a vendor, the kind of ratings that you have to show, the kind of uh, the English interface, a lot of things changes. And also, like, I mean, they still uh, import some of the shenanigans online. You know, they still try to uh, be as playful and as uh, combative with this infrastructure. But at the end of the day, they still have to play the game. Like, they cannot uh, just ignore the administration and and, uh, HR component of some of these platforms. It reminds me of my my father-in-law who lived in a small town, Iowa, 
for all of his life and he used to he was a farmer he used to go to the local farm store and he had a uh he, he could he had an account there where he could charge material to his account and then one day he went in there and they said sorry we, we can't allow you to charge your account anymore we're now working on real money only not worried about whether he's going to pay it or not but um politically it started to become no longer an option because they wanted it to be more formal and how this exchange was and it, and, and it probably did help their accountant at the end of the month to know exactly true income income and 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 payment and and all of that but it again it's it's something that changes over time from major forces that are beyond any one person yeah it's beyond anyone's control and and indented uh outcome but i feel like that's why critical thinking is so becoming so much more important because you kind of see that you can actually uh, put into the agenda that we need to see face to face exchange in totality we need to rescue and keep talking about what this essentially mean even if things are not essentially obvious from convenience point of view but that it allows sociality it allows an urban public sphere to a lot of urban underclass and it changes what is also going to somehow uh, face-to-face exchange to keep us uh, away from a monopolistic structure of few players taking over so yeah and that may also be a value uh, a value to you for not just looking at the 60 and 65 year olds but instead looking at people from ranging from age 15 all the way up to 65 and their outlook on the changes that are taking place in the bazaar mm-hmm. in fact like the younger one are more skeptical about this because the older traders are because they have a bit more financial stability they could get digital skills they are better younger people who are vendors they do not have digital skills to immediately or the financial uh, capability to move online as swiftly as uh, just uh, for business. Yeah. Of course, socially, I mean, using, oh, yeah. yeah, that would be different, but for business, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you are talking earlier on about how, how educated the older ones tended to be a bit more, mm-hmm. they tend to be a bit more educated mm-hmm. and the younger ones are right out of school. Yes. Yeah. And dropouts, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today to talk about uh, traders and tankers. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, but there's one uh, one last question that I that I must ask. What are you working on now? I am uh, continuing my market research, bazaar research in London now. So I'm looking at Whitechapel Market in East London, which is uh, an Islamic product marketplace and already um, just two months into field work, but a lot of interesting things are coming up, what it means to not have that much of heterogeneity, how does it changes the approach to uh, a market economy. So that's ongoing. I also am starting like a pilot survey of trying to understand WhatsApp status, which become WhatsApp update last month. But I'm looking at that amongst young adults in, in Guwahati, which is my home, uh, home city in, in India. And the third thing that I am doing, I'm also like into poetry a lot. So I just finished my book on poems. So trying to find a publisher, which is big. It's very, it's, uh, yeah, taking my time. But yeah, I'm keeping busy with some research, but also some creative writing. 
Excellent. And we have a channel on New Books Network for poetry as well. So please, once you get it published, let me know and and we can find somebody to uh, for you to talk to about the poetry. I would love to. I, I think it's so nice to be able to come to a place where I can really experiment with writing and, and see this kind of more holistically what academic prose and uh, poetry allow me to do and how to clarifying some of my thoughts yeah so i would love that and then also once you collect your research and and figure out where your where your study on on the bazaars in london will take you whether it be a new book or 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 an article and and or a chapter in an edit, edited version please let me know i'd love to to have you back on here to talk to talk about it because i'm i'm really curious as to how the face of bazaar changes from uh, India to to London, and I think there might even be a place someday for you with uh, looking at virtual bazaars like Facebook Marketplace. That was in the back of my mind as we were talking. My wife likes to put stuff up on on Marketplace, and I always get a little bit worried not knowing who's going to come to the door because yes, they have an account on Facebook, but that only tells so much about the person. That's an excellent suggestion. Yeah, I mean. The Whitechapel, I'm already thinking, like this is probably, I'm thinking about an article about looking at them really seriously as intellectual places because of the conversation and the depth of this conversation. And we do not have as much proactive public sphere anymore, you know, we're getting smaller and smaller, but marketplaces, people really philosophize on different things. And I want to capture that, like, what is it that ordinary concerns with so much depth and sophistication, so... Yeah, marketplaces as the intellectual life of marketplaces, as I'm calling it. So, yeah, but Facebook Marketplace would be yeah the next next uh, interesting place to research. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you again for being on um, New Books in Sociology, Motre, and I look forward to uh, talking with you again in the future. Thank you so much, Michael. I, I I could see that you read my book and you asked really insightful questions. It was really lovely interacting and having your thoughts on, on the book. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.